Murder and Moonshine, a true crime podcast with a southern twist. And I'm Misty, and today I am bringing y'all a gruesome story. I'm sure you are. We you got an axe do. murder. It's an oldie mm. but a goodie. Body pieces, definitely body mm. pieces. So we're you gonna love need... a damn axe murder. I do. I do. You love some people getting chopped the fuck up. I don't know what that's about either. <laughs> Maybe after some more shots, we can delve into well, my under, psyche there and right. figure that out. Like, why does that fascinate you so much? I think it's because you have to be so personally. It is so horrific. It, that is a very personal yeah, way it's, to kill someone. I mean, even stabbing is, you know. but Close accent, contact, yes. It's, Pieces, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's so it horrible that how can you do that? I don't know. I don't know. So I'm going to need some moonshine to get through that. Yeah. This yeah. story. Yeah. We've got. What have you got for me today? Some pina colada moonshine. <laughs> some people save the best for last. We've saved the worst for last. Mm, I like me some pina colada. I do not like pina colada. It's just pineapple and coconut. Yeah. They're amazing. Mm. What is wrong with you? I, I have a, my my palate is best suited for different nuts, not coconuts. And chicken tenders. <laughs> I do love some chicken tenders. Who don't love chicken tenders? I mean, everybody loves chicken tenders. Right? All right. Fill me up. All right. Fill me up. Here. Let's try it. We go. Go. Pineapple, coconut, 70 proof. Oh, pina colada. <laughs> Listen but it's pineapple coconut. I Pina mean, colada, know. 70 proof. Technically, let me, you know, I got to add you a little more. There. Who is this from? Sugarland. Sugarland. Mm-hmm. We do love Sugarland. This might be one of those. I can kind of feel my face getting a little warm. <laughs> this might be one of those where my face turns red and splotchy. I love when her face turns red and splotchy. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> my face feels hot right now. Cheers, right, bitches. Cheers. Mm. Oh, that is that is, good. That is very coconutty. I like oh, it. Oh, that's very coconutty. Mm. It's coconut with a burn. Hell yeah! Who wants a burning nut? Not me. I mean, when you put it like that, nobody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, but I, do I want my coconut with a little side of burn in my shine? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. I have a funny story. So over the weekend, you invited me over, graciously mm-hmm. enough, cooked me a steak and a baked potato. Right. It was fucking delicious. I posted said steaks yeah. on Snap. Yeah. Somebody, and I, I really don't even know the name. It, it just made me laugh. Somebody sent me a message and said, your meat is rotten. <laughs> And I just feel like I need to explain. Okay, listen, we're from North Carolina. And one of our favorite things in North Carolina is Dale's Steak Seasoning. Dale's Steak Seasoning is almost black. And when you soak your steak in it, your meat turns dark. (laughs) So, yes, our meat. When your meat is dark, it's good. This one is good. Dark meat is the best meat. So I just felt like I needed to explain our meat is not rotten. (laughs) 
We have very good meat. Thank you very much. The steak was delicious. But Dale's, if you haven't tried Dale's, like if you can't get it where you're from, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is the best shit ever. It It will raise your blood pressure. (laughs) It's got a lifetime of salt. And make right in there. Those steaks so fucking good. They really are. So our meat's not rotten. It's not rotten. Our meat is very fresh. We just soaked up all that goodness <laughs> in there. So <laughs> it was juicy and delicious. <laughs> it really was. It really was. I just we wanted to clear it. that up. Yeah. Well, and thank you again for having me over and cooking for me. Oh, yeah. No my problem. My husband was out of town, so my best friend's like, I'll take care of you. I'll feed you. I'll feed you. Come drink with me. And we'll and check eat. out some moonshine. And we did. Because that's what we do. <laughs> there was some Patron. There was, there's always some Patron. Uh, yeah, there is. Hanging there was the a little bit of Patron the night before with, should I call her out? Amber. Amber met with the porcelain gods for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Amber, you ride or die, girl. I love you, bitch. I love you. Well, let's take a shot to some rotten meat. I All mean, right. why not? Before here's, we get started. Here's to. We're going to be talking about some rotten meat. Our dirty meat. Cheers, bitches. That was a little. <laughs> you don't make me spit here. Let's do it again. Do it again. That was... <laughs> I'm scared to spill it. Okay. Woo! Oh, we didn't spill it. Okay. Party foul. Mmm. <laughs> Damn that burning nut. Oh, Woo! I think you're gonna like that nut before it's over with. Mm. Think before long, she's gonna be begging for that nut. <laughs> You know, truthfully, I probably will be begging for it because I'm assuming this story is going to be so bad that I'll be begging for anything to make it better. Well, not bad, but gruesome. It is gruesome. Gruesome. I mean, it's an axe murder. So on that note, let me go and give some trigger warnings. Okay. And basically the trigger warnings are, this is gruesome. An entire family was murdered. There were Mm. children that were murdered. Um, If any of that is a problem for you this is probably not the podcast but we appreciate you stopping by and not only murdered but axed murdered. yeah so i've heard of this case but i have never investigated never watched it never read about it well there's not a whole lot on it i mean because this happened in 1874 so this this is going to be new brand new information so i don't know that there's a documentary on it there's not one that i found anyway so i got the book called the axe murders of Saxtown by nicholas jc pister 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 (laughs) was he pister or maybe it was pistor pistor either way i read his book (laughs) was it good it was. Good. It was. And he spent a lot of time on this. And so if you are interested in more details than what I'm going to give you, I'd suggest go check his book out. Cool. So, <clears throat> well, let's dive on in. You ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Carl Stiltson Reader was a German immigrant who had a very hard life. He and his wife, Maria Christina Hortzman Stiltson Reader. That's a mouthful. Damn, that was a lot of names. There were a lot of names there. Uh, spent their early lives in a farming village in Hill, Germany. This was during the time when there was a lot of political unrest and the land was constantly being carved up by nobility and kings. So against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars, he had performed the same grueling farm work that he would later do in America, but without much success in Germany. 
Okay. Now, I couldn't find an exact birth date on Carl Stilson Reader, but I know in 1874, supposedly he was 70 years old when he was killed. So I'm assuming that puts him being born in 1804. 1804. Yeah. So just a little history refresher. Napoleon Bonaparte was the very first French emperor. So he came. The little man. Yes. Little dude. Yes. He came into power in 1804, which I'm guessing is about the time that Carl was born. And he was the emperor until 1815. But during this time period, they fought like a series of wars with shifting alliances in Europe. So he was born into a warring time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, in Germany mm -hmm. because of Napoleon. So, And I know people born into that tend to live a hard life. Like that's just what they know. Right. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. They're born. And he's no different in that. Right. So life in Germany was very hard on Carl and his wife, Maria. They owned a small vine covered cottage and someone burned it to the ground. This is all while they were in Germany. They rebuilt a much smaller house that was then struck by lightning and burned down. Damn. Between 1838 and 1841, Carl and Maria lost three of their four children. How? Four-year-old, it doesn't say, but I would assume disease. Just sickness. Yeah. Four-year-old Frederick Christian in 1838, 13-month-old Christian Frederick in 1840, and one-year-old Christian Heinrich in 1841. Why everybody got the same damn name? Girl, my ex-husband's mother... Was German. Mm-hmm. She's passed. But I don't know if it's a German thing. Any, If we have any German listeners that want to tune in on this and, and tell clear, us, let us know. Clear this up for us. But they just switch the names around. Like, they take the dad's name and let's say it's Thomas Jimmy. And then they come down and then it's Jimmy Thomas. And then you get to the next kid and you're like, well, we've already used up all the names. Let's not even give him a middle name and roll with it. So JT, I don't know. I don't know if that's just a thing, but she just kind of switched the names around. So a, instead of a family name like last name, they include the first and middle names as well. Yes, everybody just make it as confusing as or just fuck. my experience. There's always you know Everybody's like like with this is Frederick Christian, right. Christian Frederick, yeah. Christian Heinrich, and then they did have a son named Fritz, which was their only child that made it to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Carl and Maria were devout churchgoers, and Carl always looked at his misfortunes as God not being happy with him. So in 1844, they decided there was nothing left for them in Germany, so they boarded an immigrant ship bound for America. The trip across the Atlantic was rough. One New York paper referred to these ships as damned plague ships and water coffins. Damn. The Stilton readers did not have many belongings. All they had was on the ship with them was like a green trunk with some dry goods. And the journey to America took roughly two months back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They stayed in very confined quarters with very little fresh air. And the food they ate consisted of salted meat, custard, and plums. And it was said to smell of vomit and human excrement. There were few toilets and seasickness was rampant. Right. That's what I was going to say. The seasickness, because the boats are 
I mean, I get motion sickness. I would be yakking my brains out. Right. You would expect very close quarters on a very small ship to smell like that. Now, I know I sound really Southern, but my grandmother is from the UK. Mm -hmm. She was born in Wales and she moved to England when she was 13. And she actually, the very first time she came over here, also took a ship and came to New York. But it took her about two weeks, not two months. Two months. Yeah. But, I mean, that was in the 50s, so. Oh, so that was a totally different era. Yeah, 1874, yeah. yeah. They They had stepped it up a little bit. How was her trip? She didn't really complain about it. She didn't act like it was horrible. I don't remember her saying anything, you know terrible Would about it it's it just again? it took two weeks two weeks is a long time a long time to be on yeah, the boat yeah. yeah so but she was excited she thought she was coming to you know the land of opportunity here she gets to new york and then my grandma my grandfather picks her up in new york brings her to north carolina and she's like what the actual fuck <laughs> she thought america was just like new york <laughs> No. And she comes to, to our little country. rural area yeah. that didn't even have paved roads at the time. And yeah. So she was like, what have I done? <laughs> but she stuck it out. <laughs> so anyway, this was a horrible, I mean, two months, miserable. But, you know, look what they'd already been through. So <clears throat> you've lost all your kids. You've lost all your house. Right. What else do you have to lose? burnt down. Right. You think God is mad at you. Yes. Yes. So, this is just par for course. Here. Right. Yeah. Finally, they end up docking in New Orleans. Once there, they headed up the Mississippi and made their way to St. Louis. Now, Mark Twain was quoted saying, if you send a fool to St. Louis and you don't tell him he's a damned fool, they'll never find out. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. All right, St. Louis. You know, um, it's funny that you said they ended in New Orleans or landed in New Orleans. We've been to New Orleans, so the French Quarter is totally... Still to this day, Frenched out. Yes. over there, it looks like a different culture, right? On that part, in that part of New Orleans. So, I wonder what it was like, baby. You know what I mean? I'm, you trying know, and to... they're, yeah, absolutely. It's they're German. They want to go to a German community. Mm-hmm. So New Orleans is obviously French. So they're like, all right, we got to head on upstream. That's yeah. So they end up going up the Mississippi. And they head to St. Louis. And there was a vast German-speaking community that offered the prospects of safe harbor for the Stilton readers. Wow. So a vast-speaking German community. Well, you know, it's odd how when people were immigrating to America, which I know they still are, but, you know, when you got this mass immigration coming from all these different countries, how they all clustered together in different parts of the country. So you still to this day have people of certain heritages that are clustered, clustered in, in certain, certain areas. areas. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm sure they did that for language reasons, language barriers and right. just, just being more comfortable, just the familiarity. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Familiarity. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. I don't know that I said it right. Yeah. <laughs> that word is familiar Similar. to some, them. Yes. There you go. And, you know, if you don't speak good English, if you can go somewhere where they're speaking your native tongue. Exactly. It makes life a lot easier. Apparently, we don't even speak good English. (laughs) This is the only fucking language I do speak, and I don't even speak it properly. So So, once they got to St. Louis, they realized city life was not for them. St. Louis was full of troublemakers, 
drinking muddy Mississippi water, and breathing coal dust. Disease was rampant in the city. Black smoke was said to block out the sky, and cholera and bilious fever were everywhere due to the dirty drinking water. The funeral bells were constantly ringing every day. Mm. So they decided to stick to their roots and just keep farming. Mm -hmm. This drove them out of St. Louis into Illinois, a place called Saxtown. Nothing but farming land in, up in Illinois. So, makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's a German community where farmers would buy out their neighbors of other nationalities to keep it predominantly German. So, they went up there and the Germans would, like, cluster together. And if you had a, you know, a French family or a, you know, British family or, or whatever that wasn't a German. They're going to buy your ass yeah. out. And that makes sense, too, now that you say that, because I know some some families that came from Illinois that are of German descent. Descent, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that. Okay. Well, see, you didn't learn something I learned today. something today. The pina colada is, <laughs> a great, your is a great learner. I told you you'd like that nut. <laughs> I'm not mad at it. <laughs> so, Saxtown was extremely rural. The town had no banks or police station. The closest town was eight miles away in Belleville, Illinois. So most farmers kept their money at home. No one has time to travel a full day to go to the bank. Yeah, ain't nobody got time for that shit. Now, three miles away was a small town of Milstadt. um, And this is where everyone went to church at the Zion Evangelical Church. Now, when I talk about these little communities or towns, like Saxtown literally had nothing. Like it was just a farming community. Community, yes. Not necessarily yeah. a town right. where there's any stores right. or anything. Gotcha. And then you had Milstadt that was three miles away. And I think they had a restaurant and a church. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, there is nothing, nothing else. else. Right. The closest thing, there were several of these little farming communities mm-hmm. around here. Um, but the closest town actual town that had like a police station bank or anything was Belleville and that was eight miles away and in the book I read it described the roads going into like Saxtown as you know just dirt roads if it rained it made it even harder to get into it Mm -hmm. so it really was a chore to get to Belleville and back it was and it was very secluded right because of that right So, life prospered for Carl, Maria, and Fritz, and before long, he had a rich wheat, oat, and cornfield. He had cows, bulls, pigs, horses, and mules. He also started loaning money to other farmers in the area with interest, of course. So, he was kind of the banker in his small little rural area. Yeah. Side note, I have been to a hog farm. In Illinois, mm-hmm. and I have been to a cow farm, Damn. and I hand milked a cow. And let me just tell you, it's a lot harder than you fucking think. He's <laughs> trying to get some milk to come out of them teats, trying to work them so teats, you know. girl. <laughs> and these people that work on the farm, they're like, "Do you want to drink it?" I said, "Drink what?" They said, "Drink what you just squirt." Hell no, I am not. That I'm brave. like, I don't, you know, and it's still warm. I'm I not fresh that out. brave. <laughs> Little side note there. We do go to the farm to get our milk. I milk some teats. (laughs) And that hog farm, you know how I love pigs. I love pigs, yeah. So that was rough. There was like 8,000 hogs and babies. Little snorters. Yes. It was adorable. (laughs) Okay. Continue. Continue. 
<coughs> so he's the banker for his little community. And that's another Basically, that's yeah. another way for him to make some money if he's right, charging interest. Right, right. So, but the German German farmers in the area were really thrifty and they lived below average living standards compared to the native population around the area. So, they made their own clothes, their tools, and food. They didn't spend money on anything that they deemed non-necessity. Life was pretty unremarkable for these Stilton readers until 1866 when Carl's wife Maria died. Their only surviving son, Fritz, got married two years later to a a lady named Anna Tate. The couple took over uh, the farm from the aging Carl, and they had two children. Now, Carl couldn't shake the tragedies that happened in his home country. He became a drunk and would often walk around the farm at all hours of the night mumbling old German sayings. Was he naked? No, they didn't say he was, but I mean, I maybe bet you he was naked. Maybe he was bathing in the moonlight. Mm-hmm. He felt driven to alcohol waiting on God's inevitable retribution. Some of this was probably triggered because the Civil War um, was basically wrapping up mm-hmm. so there was a lot of fighting just triggers, of triggers from the old country from, from his childhood yeah yeah carl started getting into arguments with friends and family in early march of 1874 he got into a quarrel with his brother charles over an inheritance that a german relative had left him he and his brother never spoke again <clears throat> And, of course, in a rural community, all the neighbors gossiped about this sizable inheritance that Carl had received. Fritz and his wife, Anna, were not very concerned with Carl's fragile state and constant arguments. They had been um, in a cold snap, and their daughter had gotten sick with suspected whooping cough. So they were worried about does the their, farm. Does their whooping cough sound like Vivi in the background? She is. Wallowing around. Like she has some whooping cough going on right we now. We have the AZ going <laughs> and V rolling around. So if you hear some weird stuff, just know. So the daughter got sick with a whooping cough. Right. And, and there had been a cold snap, so they were worried about the farm. So they weren't really worried about dad walking around. They didn't have time to drunk. worry about him work, walking around They naked. had the farm and two sick kids. He was naked and drunk. You think he was naked. Fighting. Drunk people do like to get naked. Right. Though. I don't know. <clears throat> on Thursday, March 19th, 1874, Fritz went to a farm auction in the nearby farming community of High Prairie. Just about every farmer in Saxtown was there. Fritz was said to have a willow basket hanging from his neck, and everyone at the auction was watching him because they believed that he had reported sizable inheritance of gold that he kept in there. So it's like this little wicker basket necklace, mm-hmm. and he kept money in that. And that's a sizable amount of gold. I it guess didn't for say that how day. big this basket is, but I find it hard to believe there'd be just some big chunky ass basket. basket. And right. Gold is heavy as fuck, right? So you're not going to carry it around your neck a sizable but amount. But he did. Everyone said that he did, so he did carry money in that. Okay. okay. Whether it was the inheritance, nobody knows because nobody knows exactly what that inheritance was. It was just sizable. Yes. Gotcha. So, um, <clears throat> Fritz sold potato seedlings to Ben Schneider, which he was to come to the farm the next day to pick up. 
He also offered a loan to anyone up to $800 in cash that he kept at the farm, even saying that he would have the money at the farm until Monday if anyone was interested. $800 in cash right? this time? Like, is a lot of money. A lot of fucking That's money. a lot of money. Yeah. So he's basically letting everyone know at he's this got option. All this money. And I'm going to have this money till Monday if y'all need to stop by and borrow some. First mistake. Holler at me. <laughs> right. Do not announce you got a lot of money on hand at your right. house. Right. So Fritz is said to have clutched the wicker basket around his neck and mounted his horse to head home. This was the last time anyone ever saw Fritz alive again. Fritz had been very open about going to the bank Monday because they had too much money at the farm and they knew that this could be dangerous. Then why the fuck did you announce But it? you're still telling it to everyone like, hey, but if y'all need to borrow some money, I got it till Monday. Not good. If you knew it was dangerous, why did you announce And obviously it? Fritz never made it to the bank. Uh, yeah. yeah. It don't matter what you're wearing around your neck. Mm-hmm. That yeah. can be taken. Yeah. It just shows how naive, too, at the time. They're like, oh, my neighbors wouldn't do this to me. Even after you announce. It's a hard lesson learned right there. That night, the family went to bed, never knowing this would be the last night of their lives. Anna was in bed with her sick eight-month-old daughter Mm -hmm. and her three-year-old son, Carl Jr., Fritz decided to sleep on the lounge at the end of the bed in the main room so that his wife could tend to the sick kids. Right. He didn't want to be disturbed. He's like, fuck you and them kids. You well, he's sleeping he's- on the lounge at the end of the bed. So he's technically still right there with them. He's just oh, not I in, thought the you meant in the bed. You said in the main room. I thought you meant like a whole nother Well, the room. bedroom is in the main room. This only had like three rooms, this gotcha. little house. Gotcha. So he- and so okay. in the main room was a four-poster bed. All right, fuck, I'm sorry, Fritz. Okay, you're there. You're there. <laughs> Carl, however, did have his own little, his own little bedroom off to the side there. Okay. So. Um, Carl went to sleep in his bedroom, and he had put his coat by the door, and his son Fritz had put his boots out for work for the next day. Now, most reports say that it was around 5 p.m. in the afternoon when Ben Schneider made his way over to the Stilton Readers to get his potato seedlings. 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 I just added an A up in there. Seedlings. Seedlings. Ben's farm was about a mile from Carl's, so he took the muddy path over to the farm with full intentions of just picking up his seedlings and heading home. When he got to the Stilton Readers' farm, he noticed that something was very off. Everything seemed eerily quiet. He noticed that the animals on the farm seemed to be in a panic. None of them had been fed, and the cows had not been milked. The family's Newfoundland hound, Monk, sounded like he was pinned out back. How do you look at a cow and know it's not been milked? Well, I mean, if those udders are engorged and, you know. Okay. And cows, I mean, think about after you've had a baby and your, you know, breast milk comes in and then but you don't. I guess if they're exposed, then you could look at them and say, mm, you need say to Say that looks angry and inflamed right there. <laughs> <laughs> ben yelled for Fritz or Carl from the yard, but no one answered. He walked up on the porch and knocked on the door and yelled for the family again, and there was still no answer. He checked the door to see if it was unlocked. And it was. He opened the door 
And from the fading sunlight streaming in, he saw a scene that neighbors said looked like a domesticated slaughterhouse, mm. and the inhabitants were struck down like butchered hogs. Okay, let's pause. Yeah, let's get some pina colada. Give me a little yeah. of that pina colada. It ain't raining. Cold in the rain, but it might later. <laughs> they are calling for severe thunderstorms. No shit. I want a little of that so that you can describe this horrific scene this poor man walks into. And he does. And, uh, and uh, actually, oh, yeah. we're going to oh, go yeah. through the scene several times, honestly, oh, well, from different you. standpoints. Hey, oh, great. I want to make okay. sure you get a clear picture, you know? Cheers, bitches. Mm. If you're drinking at home with us. I hope your shit's burning as bad as that fucking burning nut is burning in my mouth right now. I feel now. like I need to be laying in the sun hold up right now. I, but it tastes like fucking suntan lotion. Mm, it does. Yeah. Mm. But in yeah, a good way to me. All right. So this poor man sees this terrible, horrific scene. scene. Ben saw three severed fingers scattered on the floor like spent gun shells. And a head nearly severed from the body lay just three steps from the door. A few feet away, a woman lay dead with her two children, whose heads were beaten so badly it was described as raspberry jelly. I don't know that at this point I would have kept going because I'm not physically. Well, from the way I gathered in the book, because it was so small, I think this is what he just seen from the doorway oh, looking in. I, I don't I, at some point you have to quit looking because that's just nightmare. But you don't after ever think about that. You're just going there. You're picking up some potato seeds. Yes, I know. And you're like, okay, it's weird. What's going on? You open up. You don't expect to see a butchered family. I feel like if I'd have saw fingers first and mm -hmm. a severed head or nearly severed head, I'm just going to close the door and turn around right there. I don't need to see. Well, the look, he wasn't too far good. behind you doing that. Okay, so. good. <laughs> okay, good. Um, there was blood and brain matter on the walls, mm. and the house had been ransacked. Well, Ben fled running as fast as he could, screaming in his native tongue. Soon, all of that Saxtown would come to the farm, summoned by Ben's screams. Yeah. And, and that would be me, just a screaming lunatic. Yeah. If these were some people that I knew. Right. And I'm just like, hey, what's up, y'all? It takes a that, minute for this to kick in. Like, what am I seeing? I would literally, because to me, sometimes when you're running from it, like, you're trying to forget it. So you think the faster you're running from it, it's not really happening. It's not really It's true. like, I want to get somebody else here because I can't believe what I just what, said. I, right. Like, yeah. it's not reality. Yeah. So this would be the biggest murder case in the county or in the country, rather, since the assassination of President Lincoln. This Damn. made all the headlines. How could it not if you have children's heads bashed in? Five, five members of a family entirely wiped the, out. Yeah. Till yeah. it looks like raspberry jam. That's yeah. fucking disgusting oh. and horrible. Ben ran and told his brother, George Schneider, and two minors that were staying at George's house, paying him room and board. These two men were Charles and George Killian. The police station was in Belleville, eight miles away. I'm sorry, are the only names in the story Charles and George? There are. There's two brothers. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Continue. There's a lot of George and Charles's. 
in the story. And if you've been drinking like we have... And I'm going to throw another Charles at you here later because oh, Carl's brother's name is Charles as well. So Carl, Charles. Yep, they're brothers. Why? Okay. Yep, and then you got George Schneider and George Killian and Charles Charles <laughs> Killian. God, nice. <laughs> We're not even halfway through here. <clears throat> so, anyway, the roads to Saxtown were dirt and hardly passable after a heavy rain, which it had been doing several days before the murder. The group of men, the Schneider brothers and the Killian brothers, along with farmer Fred Eckert Sr., one of Saxtown's largest landowners, decided to keep a vigil at the house until law enforcement could arrive. What, what does that mean, keep a vigil at the house? So like, like, they, are they, they stay, guard? yes, okay. they stood guard at the house okay. to so make sure. Protecting the crime scene. Yes, okay. yes. Now, along the way, they notified anyone they came across about the murders, so news traveled as fast as a man could run or a horse could gallop. The locals were scared to death because this means a killer is on the loose, mm-hmm. and they had just brutally murdered an entire family. Right. So it's not just a killer. I mean, this is a fucking axe murderer. Right. So it's brutal. Very brutal. And you, you annihilated a t- an entire family. Children and all. So this is the These real people had never man. seen anything like right. this before. When the men made it to the Stilton Reader house, they all stood outside, all of them refusing to go in. George Schneider was reportedly very distraught and ended up almost passing out. Yeah, who the fuck would want to go in and say, if they told me what was in there? And you know that the police is probably another 10 hours out. Yeah, but I mean, if you have people sick, you have people visibly distraught, they've told you what's in there, I believe you. I do not need to go in there and see it for myself, I believe you. Unless that's my job, and I have to. Otherwise, I'll just stand out guard here. And protect this crime scene to let the folks do their right. jobs they need to do. Right. <laughs> well, a local school teacher named Isaiah Esquire Thomas showed up at the house after hearing the terrible news. He was said to be the most educated man in Saxtown and taught at the small schoolhouse they had in town. Did the kids attend there? Yes. The group of men were happy to let Isaiah take the lead. He walked into the house to verify what Ben Schneider had seen. The group of men followed him in the house, and they just didn't want to be the first one in. So they're standing out there, and Isaiah's like, I'm going to go in and look. And they're like, okay, you go first, and we're right behind you. So, <laughs> I don't want, mm. By now, it was dark outside, and they used the lanterns to go into the house. That would I, make it even fucking creepier. Yeah. No. Isaiah saw three bodies in the bed and two bodies on the floor. Total of five. The entire family was wiped out. The men described the house as still silent and the smell of death hung in the air. A little boy, a sick baby girl, a devoted mother, and an ambitious father, and a tired old man all rendered lifeless. Wow. The men decided to cover the bodies with bed sheets out of respect for the family, but this definitely disturbed the crime scene. Yeah, you a crime scene means you don't touch anything. Right. I understand. And and we're it's eighteen seventy four. Yeah. It's so, eighteen seventy and I understand they want to be respectful. Right. And that's the first thing you want to do. And is it cover. was probably hard for them to, to, ki- to continue looking see. at it. Yeah. Right. Everyone in the small little town could be a suspect. The roads were too bad to have had the killer escape quickly, so neighbors all started eyeing each other as the suspect 
Sad. Who did they think was capable in their neighborhood? This was a tight I think they community. questioned everything. I mean, at this point, right. they're like, okay, was this, it you? Could it have been you? If you know. this unbelievable act happened, right. then somebody unbelievable did it. Yes. So I get it. I yes. get it. One of the Killian brothers, George, made some rather crude comments. He said, let me see how bad her head is hammered out of shape. Is her eye sticking out yet? Some also thought that this was suspicious that George Schneider was so upset as well. So people just start questioning everything. Everything, yeah. Isaiah Thomas ordered everyone out of the house to preserve the crime scene, even though they had already tampered with evidence. He wanted everything um, watched and nothing disturbed. Mm-hmm. They all a little had, too late for that. But, yeah, okay. they had all only stayed in the house for a couple of minutes. The smell was said to be so bad that no one wanted to be in the house. Yeah, there's nothing like the smell of death. We've talked about that before. And yeah, apparently it was pretty bad mm-hmm. in this case. Wild rumors and speculations started to take hold. At first, people were saying it couldn't be one of us. It had to be some drifter who they gave refuge to and then... They killed him. There was also a young woman that was murdered three years earlier by a man that was a drifter. And he came to her house to ask for room and board for the night. And seeing that she was there alone and her husband had made the day-long trip to town, he decided to kill her and plunder the house. Mm-hmm. So this was something that had happened before. before yeah. But not but with five families. But to one person, yes. not an entire yes. family. The death penalty was widely used back in 1874. All across the country, men were hanged by the neck and strung up like lollipops in a candy store window. Damn, that's a rough analogy. Mm, but you can see it. Yeah. One case I came across researching this was a man named Joseph Waltz that was hanged in California for killing a man with an axe. Apparently, he was having an affair with the man's wife, and she talked him into killing her husband. But when they hung him, the rope was so tight around his neck, his head popped off. Oh, my God. And they used to line up in the streets and watch that shit, too. Yes, so they did. They absolutely. Yes. Ugh. And it said that his headless body dropped to the ground and that his head rolled another six feet out past his body. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's just, you know, speculation, propaganda, the drama the just, newspapers wanted right, to drum up. The you know. stories. Yeah. Because mm. I'm telling you, back then, especially in this case, you see, there were news reporters because this was the biggest story in the country. Mm-hmm. So, and they would just make up shit. Like, it didn't even right. have to be factual at all. Right. So, that gets muddled into this. True. So, meanwhile, Isaiah Thomas was trying to keep everyone calm because by this time, over a hundred people had showed up at the Stilton Reader home. They came as soon as they heard, scared that the axe murderer would come to their homes and butcher their families. Farmers brought their families because they were too scared to leave them at home. And all they could do was just wait on the sheriff to get there. Yeah. that. But, you know, there's safety in numbers. Right. And you're not going to have one person come in and kill 500 And if or you think back to the case I did with the servant girl annihilator, the same thing happened. They all gathered in town after mm-hmm. news of these axe murders because there was safety in numbers. numbers right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's true. It right. Is. Constable William G. Bangert heard the news. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were going to laugh when I said his last name. Oh, Constable Bangert <laughs> heard the news in the nearby town of Milstadt. Um. And he decided that he needed to get to Belleville 
ASAP and let the sheriff know. So he hightailed it into Belleville. Okay. In Belleville, Sheriff James W. Hughes was said to be a bigger man standing six foot three, well built, blue eyes, dark hair, and a flair for theatrics. Well, that was a very descriptive. This is how he's described. He's described as always looking immaculate. He always wore a white coat and a white vest, a flashy gold watch, a Stetson hat, and a forty-four caliber on his hip. And a pair of shiny boots. Because he had the inmates at the jail shine his boots daily. Wow. So, he was going to be looking fresh. When you said white shirt, white vest, white, I was like, damn, he's trying to be fresh. He is fresh at the murder scene. He's fresh. He said there were five bodies. It was very gruesome. And that Ben Schneider had found them. He also suspected Ben and George Schneider because George was acting strange. And Ben had found the bodies. Everybody's a suspect. Everybody's a suspect, right. Hughes and his deputies entered the death house with lanterns. They moved the sheets off the bodies, but touched nothing else, leaving the bodies in place for when the coroner arrives. He observed Anna still laying in bed with her two children. He believed they were the first to die. Hughes could see the yellow-haired infant and her little hands were still clasped around her mother's neck. wonder why he thinks those were... those were because the they didn't move. but They were would, still in their sleeping positions. Right, right. But you would think they would kill the men first. They're the biggest threat. But I guess we'll find out more of the story. That was just my, True. my but thought process. They, the, both of the men had moved from their sleeping positions. Okay. And so why didn't he get them first? That's a good question. Hmm. That's a anyway, great question. Proceed. The infant's head was split open and laying on her mother Anna's chest. Oh, God. Anna's skull appeared to be crushed, and the little toddler boy's head had been hacked so much that it no longer resembled a human form. Mm. Fritz's body was in a terrible Why do you shape need as well. That much violence towards a child, a defenseless. I, you know, I don't understand why killing the the children, especially like an eight month old, is not like what are they she's going to be able to tell on right. you, right? right? So I don't know. That's for the joy of killing, you sick bastard. I, I really can't even. Why else would you kill an infant? Figure out why you would annihilate two children if you were just trying to steal money. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Fritz's body was in terrible shape as well. His head was nearly detached from his body, and three mm-hmm. of his fingers were cut off and laying near his body on the floor. Carl's body was beaten badly, and his clothes had blood spots and what is described as congealed gore on them. What does that mean? Congealed the blood had gore. congealed, so, so it was kind of almost jelly-like. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because it clotted. Yes. His body was found on the floor, and he was clutching his coat in his hand. The closet and dresser were emptied of their contents and strewn about the floor. And it was noted that the back door was locked and that the front door had been unlocked from the inside. The door jam showed signs of deep cuts, indicating that these were misguided axe swings. The crowd outside wanted answers, so Hughes gave them a small bit of info to keep the crowd calm. They, he, don't, they don't need all the info. Well, and you that know, he don't like know a, all the info But no, I'm just talking about just 
the details of the crime like, scene. Could you imagine this happening today and then going out and there's over 100 people standing on the lawn of the crime yeah. scene they don't and the sheriff's the, just giving them answers yeah. They don't need the details. About the crime. That's, that's just going to cause even more panic. Well, he told them that he thinks that this is the work of a single man, not a group. Mm-hmm. He told them he thought Anna and the children were killed first because it doesn't appear that they had moved at all from how they had been sleeping. Right. Hughes also told the crowd that the murders were definitely done or the murders were definitely done by someone that did not care about money because there was cash still in the house. This is someone who wanted to simply clean out the entire family. He wanted none of them and he left none of them. But I thought it was about the money. Well, this is what Sheriff Hughes, he just walked in his house for five minutes and comes out and this is what he tells us. Yes. And he just tells the crowd this. The crowd gossiped and stayed up all night, scared to go home and sleep for fear of the killer who was still on the loose. When the sun started to rise, the residents of Saxtown created a search party to help see if there was anything they could help find to help solve the case. They searched creek beds, wheat fields, and haystacks. On March 21, 1874, the search party found the blood-stained tobacco leaves about a mile north of the Stilson Reader home. Mm-hmm. Tobacco leaves were commonly commonly used during this time to treat wounds and to stop bleeding. So it was like somebody's dressing, a mm-hmm. packing. Yes, that like they a had packing. Used. Yes. Okay. So the killer may have been injured. They thought. Mm-hmm. Right. After a telegram was sent to the St. Louis Globe on the twentieth of March, the murders in Saxtowns were headline news from New York to San Francisco. But a hard-hitting editor from the Globe named Joseph B. McCullough wanted the inside scoop. He wanted to be the first one to make it to Saxtown and get that get in that house. He had moved from Ireland at the age of 11 by himself. Damn. Just 11 years old, moved to a different country. Country. All alone. I can't imagine. He also became a war correspondent for the newspaper out of Ohio. He witnessed one of the Civil War's most deadly battles, the Battle of Shiloh. So he was accustomed to seeing body parts sliced off by bayonets, piled up bodies, and gruesome bloodshed. Yeah, if and you're following any of the Civil Wars, yeah, you're used to some gruesome It's pretty shit. horrible stuff. Right. And uh, he had made The Globe the most sensational newspaper in the country at this time. So his reporters were going to be the first ones in that house, and right. he was going to make sure of it. Right. So when... Um, the reporters from the Globe arrived at the Stilson Reader farm. There were about 50 people still there. The house was surrounded by wagons, and the sheriff had left instructions for the local um, Saxtown residents helping guard the house that no one should enter without him being there. He mm-hmm. also did not want to disturb the crime scene until the coroner had done the inquest. Mm-hmm. So Sheriff Hughes didn't feel that he needed to stay until the coroner got there when you've got 50 residents with wagons are are surrounding right. the house, right? So he Although goes back. he's the sheriff. Right. But he goes back to Belleville so that he could try to get approval from a judge to offer a $1,000 reward. Um, to anyone that had information. Yeah. I can totally see him like, y'all guard this motherfucker. Yeah. I'm going to go down here. There's nothing I can do here till the coroner right. gets here anyway. Let me talk to the judge. Right. Let me see what I can get done. I'll be back. Yeah. 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 And, and these that. are day long trips. Right. So. Exactly. Yeah. Sheriff Hughes also knew that the only way to get more resources for the case is that he needed the attention of Governor John L. Beveridge. 
Mm-hmm. So he's um, trying to make it. Like, yeah, he's trying to get news. more resources mm-hmm. allocated to the case so that they could flush out the killer and maybe even hire some private detectives to solve the murder. Right. And this is another thing that blows my mind. They, the they police offer want to hire private, private detectives, detectives to come in. So you can have no murder. training. This is what we talked about in the Servant Girl Annihilator. You don't have to have training. You can just throw up a sign that says, I feel like I want to be a detective today. There's and a $1,000 reward. I can I'm buy a house with out. that. Yeah. Right. right. But at the Stilton Reader Farm, surrounded by their neighbors' wagons and instructions not to let anyone in the house, the Globe reporter was able to talk them into letting him, a constable, and a friend go in the house. Oh, you know, he swapped, you know, was like trying to be suave and smooth right. and talk his way in there. So, like, he let me access. take my friend. We'll take the constable over here that's still here. I just want to go in and we just want to report on the house. So right. they're like, I know the sheriff told us not to, but go ahead. It's fine. <laughs> So they open the front door of the house and are hit with the stench of death. Mm-hmm. All three just stand there for a few moments before they can gather the carrot, the gather the courage, courage to, go in. to go in. That would be me. The bodies were decaying pretty fast. Well, yeah. And I mean, you're, rigor mortis had already come it, and gone. Oh, God. The front room was just full of bodies. Yes. They said it was almost too hard to focus on just one Looking down on the floor, they didn't even, they didn't want to get blood on their boots, and it was everywhere. So they're trying to look where they're stepping and not stepping any pools of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said it was described like the blood on the floor was like a congealed muck. Yeah, by this time, so it was it like is a thick dry, jelly. Yeah. It's so, there's so much blood, it's not even completely dry. It's like a jelly. Yes. The main blood source on the floor was from Fritz, whose body laid nearby. He was laying on his left side with deep gashes to his face, head, and neck. Mm. His throat was cut from ear to ear, and his head dangled on his left arm. Damn! Laying near his body were three decaying fingers that looked like they were from they were torn from his hand. The Globe reporter said his hands looked like darkened nubs, and his skin was no longer the color of human flesh. Yeah, because they're starting to to decay and rot. Yes. It appeared to them that Fritz was was the one that fought back. Fritz was wearing his jeans and a blue shirt. He didn't bother with pajamas. He was always ready for work. So he slept in his work clothes. Right. The trio looked into the adjoining room and they saw Carl laying on the floor. The reporter said that it was the most terrible sight a human being could look upon. I I can't even imagine. Carl, the man that had survived so much hardship in his life, looked like butchered meat. Mm. His body was more mutilated than his son's. His throat had been cut and chopped and his head had been pounded and pounded until it was crushed by something heavy. His bed was unmade like he had just left it. He was wearing a white t-shirt and drawers. There was clotted blood on his shirt and drawers, just like near his son, it was a bloody congealed mess. Yes. Damn. Okay. Whew. Pass me some pina colada. Yes. I was going to tell about... you the next one. I want to go ahead and give some trigger warnings. Um, oh. After this shot, if you want to bounce ahead, we are going to give a little descriptive scene of the children's death scene. So oh, if that's too yes. much, we get it and you need to pop ahead. Well, but we're going to take some me. shots. Yeah, it's too much for me. So I need to shot. To right. make it through because I mean, at the end of the day, I want to hear the story, but but it's still fucking horrible. It, it, horrible. Cheers, bitches. Mm. Mm. 
That time that was more pineapple than nut. See, you're gonna, we're going to see what it tastes like to you by the end of this. <laughs> it's still not good, but it didn't burn near as bad. Mm, I still like it. It makes okay. me feel like I'm at the beach. So we have a trigger warning coming. Yes. We're going to talk about these, these poor are descriptive babies. death scenes of children. So if you need to pop ahead, now's the time. Okay. The centerpiece of the murder scene was also the most heartbreaking. McCullough said that the most heart-rendering scene of all, a large four-post wooden bed with Anna and the two children in it. The reporter said that their faces of death are unforgettable. Anna's face was a mass of blood and hair and unrecognizable. Her eight-month-old was in her arms, and the little girl had her arms around her mom's neck. She had blonde hair, and her blue eyes were still open. Anna's neck Fuck. had been cut. Baby Anna's head had been caved in by blunt object. She was only hit once. Her older brother, Carl Heinrich, just three years old, was laying on the side of the bed and his head had also been crushed. His face was so bruised and covered in blood that you could not recognize his features. The reporter noted that it was the everyday things that saddened him. The cough syrup by the bed the little socks and boots neatly put away, and a little boy's toy was on the floor. But what was strange to the residents of Saxtown is why none of the Stilts and Reader's family members had come to the house yet. How far away are they? Anna's sister and brother-in-law, Fred Boltz, nor Carl's brother, Charles Stilts and Reader, had shown up. Did Charles, they know about it? Fred I mean, they're in did. this town. Yes, Fred okay. absolutely did. Charles had actually moved away years earlier after a feud with Carl mm -hmm. and had not spoken to him. Yeah, since. over the inheritance. Right. right. Now, the rumor mill had geared up and everybody was talking about this feud between Fred Boltz and his brother-in-law, Fritz. Fritz Stilton Reader was married to Anna and Anna and Fred's wife are sisters. Okay. So... Um, interestingly enough, the bloody tobacco leaves and the drops of blood seemed to point in the direction of the Boltz's home because it was only like a mile up the road. Wow. Sheriff Hughes instructed his deputies to go get Fred Boltz from home and force him to come to the Stilson Reader farm. Yeah. I mean, he just at least give an explanation. Right. You know, your family's killed. You're not here. Right. And we found some blood and shit heading in your direction. Right. So come in and let us know what's going on. He gave all kinds of excuses on why he couldn't go. Like his boots were wet from wading in water the night before. The fuck was you doing wading in water, bitch? Don't nobody get it. It had been raining no for days. Ain't you got no other shoes? Because Fred and Carl and Fritz did not get along anymore. I understand, but you still need to come give an account right. of your massacred family. Right. In the only lead we have. Or going he would in your just direction. say he's too busy. His boots were wet. He was too busy. No, no. So Hughes served him with a subpoena and forced him to the farm. How the fuck you got a for? Mm. Yeah. It makes you look suspect. Mm, yes. Yes. The argument between the Stilson Readers and the Bolts started when Fred borrowed money from the Stilson Readers. Right. He borrowed several hundred dollars over a three-year period. And when Fred did not pay Carl and Fritz back, they put a lien on two of Bolts's mules and 16 acres of wheat. Oh. This infuriated Fred. Okay, but Fred, 
you know, you borrowed if you the borrow money, money you yeah. have to pay it back exactly. or there's consequences. So this infuriated Fred, and so he forbade his wife from seeing or speaking to her sister. Mm, no. Carl began, you know, being drunk all the time, now naked, only made naked. matters worse when he started telling everyone in town about Fred's financial problems. Oh, he's drunk, blubber, blabber, yes. and blubber in his this mouth. This was very embarrassing to Fred yeah. and only fueled the feud. Um, the crowd that was still gathered at the Stilson Reader farm, I'll believe Fred killed the family and they watched him and gossiped about how no one in the German community liked him. You know, damn, wouldn't you hate for everybody to be pointing a finger at you to think you were possible right. bashing in children's right. heads? Yes. Son of a bitch. And apparently his wife and children were the only ones that would have anything to do with him. But damn. then I read in other reports that um, in another farming community not far from Saxtown, mm-hmm. that he was a Sunday school teacher and that people loved him there. So they were respected in the community over. So it, you know, it just really depends on who you're talking to gotcha. at this point. Gotcha. One of the reporters asked the people in the crowd if they thought he should be hanged, and they all said that that wouldn't be brutal enough a death for him. If. He, if they had the proof that he was right. the person that did this. Let's don't jump to conclusions. Exactly. Hughes questioned Fred about what he had the night before, what he had done the night before, and made him strip to see if he was wounded because they believe that the killer may have hurt himself and used the tobacco leaves to try to, to stop the bleeding. the bleeding. Right. Fred had no visible wounds on him. They found no blood anywhere on his clothing. Um... They did say that his boots looked like it had uh, red streaks on them that could have been blood, but there was no way to prove that. I mean, it was also muddy. I was going to say it could have been mud as right. well. There's exactly. Mud. And they didn't do DNA testing. They didn't have right. blood they typing have- and all that. Sure. So, so some detectives and a Globe reporter went to search the Bolts farm. They spent hours tearing this rundown farm apart and they found absolutely nothing, not even a drop of blood. Now, finally, the coroner, John Ryan, arrived along with East St. Louis Police Chief John Webster Renshaw, several of his officers, City Marshal Michael Walsh, and two physicians. It just seems like that took a long fucking time, but... It did. I mean... It was back, the, back in the day. Right. They had to get there by horse. The crowd at this time had swelled to almost 500 people. Damn. Who were anxious to hear what the coroner's inquest will say. Now, John Ryan was the coroner, but he had no medical background. His job was just to make sure that the formality and procedures of the inquest were carried out correctly and to find a six person jury to judge the inquest. The fuck? So okay, we think of a coroner now and they have medical training. And, and they tell us the cause of death, the time of death. They give us no, the information. He's just there with two doctors. The doctors are going to look at that. And he's just there to make sure that the procedures go correctly and that he can find a six-person jury, which there's 500 people outside. Right. So he's just going to go pick a few of them. Um, like, can you imagine random, having, like, no. we're just going to pick few of you out of the crowd uh you 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 and you let's right. go the medical examination of the bodies was done by one of the physicians on the scene named and i'm gonna try this 
Dr. Schlernitzauer. <laughs> Schlernitzauer. As soon as Schlernitzauer. As soon as you started, I knew. I knew. <laughs> it's Dr. Schlernitzauer. Okay. So I did What's it. What's up, Dr. S? <laughs> yes. The investigation found that there was blood traces and a drag mark like someone drug a bloody axe as they walked away from the scene. They also found shoe prints in the mud, and the shoes looked like the soles had been nailed in. Damn. But then you think about it, at the time, you have 500 people there. Mm-hmm. That could have been anybody's, anybody's shoes. It's been raining. Around. Yeah. Right. The inquest was held on the lawn of the Stilton Reader Farm. Ben Schneider was questioned, so was Isaiah Thomas, and a guy named John Afkin. John Afkin was a former farmhand of the Stilton Readers. Many believed he was the one that swung the axe for Fred Bolts. They were also seen having a spirited conversation right after the murders happened. Spirited. Yes. Now, Fred Bolts is described as being a very small and super religious man. Okay. So he's a tiny fella. Okay. And then Afkin was described as this big, muscular, red-headed beast. <laughs> so, so why he got to be a beast? I mean, the way they described him, he's just big, and they said they big think he knows how to swing an axe. Big and beastly. <laughs> big and beastly. Okay. So... Fred Bolts was questioned, and he ma- he was made to look at the bodies. He kept refusing to look at the bodies, but they forced him to look at his brother-in-law as they rolled over his body. Mm. His head almost came off, and some in the crowd watching almost passed out, yeah. and some of the women vomited. Yes. The smell was said to be almost unbearable. Yes. But when Fred was forced to look at them, he showed no reaction, and this just made him look all the more guilty. Right. If you go look at this motherfucker and his head almost falls off and whether you're mad at him or not, at some point, this was your family. And he refused. He did not want to see it. So maybe that was just his shutdown. You know, some people fight, flight or freeze. Right. As Fred was questioned more, he seemed to become fearful and very artfully avoided incriminating himself. Bolts was set free because there was no wounds on his body and there was no proof that he had anything to do with the murders. The crowd was shocked. They already had him pegged as guilty in their minds. They were ready to lynch this motherfucker. He didn't have nothing to do with it. Right. Sheriff Hughes and coroner John Ryan disagreed on how many people were involved. Hughes said that this was the work of one man and Ryan said he thinks it's the work of two because two different weapons were used. Ryan didn't think that a person would axe people and then stop and use a knife to cut them. So they were stabbed and their throats were slit Mm -hmm. as well as being axed. Yeah, when you had described him earlier and said his throat was slit from ear to ear, that's a a behind you knife movement. But then his... He was almost decapitated as well. So that's right. an axe movement. Right. So there were definite axe. Yeah. So there were definite axe and knife cuts. So they're like somebody wouldn't use an axe and then just stop and then pick up a knife and, and mm, do that. Some people would. Right. Some people would. Some people definitely would. <clears throat> Ryan also said that Hughes was mistaken when he said no money was taken because there was at least $100 taken from Fritz. And there was no gold found in the house, so they could not say that any gold was not stolen. Ryan did caution the crowd that this whole affair would take some time to be brought to light. 
Because, you know, there was just rumors of this inheritance that he got. So right. people thought he had gold in the house, but nobody knew for sure. But they didn't find any gold, so they can't say that gold wasn't stolen because they don't really know if gold was there to start with. Right. So Sheriff Hughes, who thought he didn't need to be there for the inquest, was furious when he heard John Ryan's account. He wanted them to send Fred Bolts to him to put in jail, but instead they set him free. Hughes then pivoted his theory and decided that John Afkin was the hired hand that actually killed the family. Embarrassed that the coroner, John Ryan, had publicly disagreed with him, he appeared to accept Ryan's findings and start the hunt for the accomplice. Mm -hmm. Now, lack of arrest being made that night made the Saxtown farmers anxious. Yeah. And it you kept have several whole, of them up all night camping on the lawn at the Stilts and Ridge Farm. Absolutely. Still, we have that safety in numbers. Right. I totally understand. They're like, you ain't caught this motherfucker yet. You should have got him stay, tonight. Yeah, we're going to stay right yeah. here. By custom, the neighbors were expected to build coffins and bury the dead because no family had shown up. So. Damn. A wealthy farmer in the nearby town recognized the fear in his neighbor's eyes and hired private police to protect Saxtown residents and help with the investigation. So then we got a little influx of of a whole nother police wannabe police department, officers, private, private eyes. Yeah, right. Rural parts of the country were mostly left to fend for themselves during the late 1800s. I mean, if it takes a whole day for a police officer to even get to you, yeah. you kind of handle shit yourself. Right. So, what other choice do you have? Right. The bodies of the family were moved out one by one, and there were three graves dug at the Freivogel Cemetery. One for Carl, one for Fritz, and one for Anna and the two children. Oh, my God, they buried her babies with her. Yes, yes. But Sheriff Hughes had had enough and sent his son, Deputy Julius Hughes, to arrest Fred Bolts and John Afkin, while Saxton had the Stilson Reader funeral on March 22nd, 1874. But they don't have any evidence. Yeah, he's just made up in his mind. Him and his white vests, (laughs) he knew in his mind. You're it. This is what happened. And there's no proof to say that they didn't do this either. But there's no proof to say they did. Well, but I feel like if you have that bloody of a murder scene, you have that horrific of a you would murder think scene. There would be some there's cuts. Gonna be there would be something. There has right. to be. Has right. To be. I agree. Even if you do it to yourself when you're slipping. A knife, as I've seen in many documentaries, get really slippery from the blood and the knife moves around. Sure. Nine times out of ten, they end up injuring themselves. Right. There's got to be some evidence of something. Yes. And neither one of these men had any cuts or anything like that on them. So. Right. One thing that was still missing from the funeral was any Stilson Reader family members. Carl's brother, who lived about two hours away, never came, nor did his children. But lots of private detectives had showed up in town to see if they could solve the case and get that reward money. But there were lots of people that didn't even know the Stilton readers that came to the funeral from as far as 30 miles away. Just curious because of the heinous nature of the killings. See, if you don't even, but you just coming to see what's going on. Yes. That's not But I mean, right. you even think about it, like when John Dillinger was shot out in the front of that movie theater, there were people Everybody dipping handkerchiefs yeah. in his blood as a souvenir. That's 
fucking crazy. They didn't have TV. They didn't have shit. So this was like, we got nothing else to do. Let's ride <laughs> on down here. Hey, did you hear about that family that got massacred? Why don't we ride Let's on go down to the here funerals. and see what That's the fuck terrible. is going on? That's crazy. Yeah. After days of being questioned, Boltz and Afkin have not confessed to anything. And Fred was said to be a very religious man, so they even called in a clergyman to see if he would confess, and he never did. So Hughes was at a dead end. Well, um, that's because they didn't fucking do it. Right. Maybe. Oh. We don't know. I think I know. We don't Maybe know. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, go ahead. Now, on Monday, March 23rd, 1874... Judge F.H. Piper appointed Frederick Eckert and Charles Kemper, neighbors of the murdered family, as administrators of the estate. Did you say Kemper? Yeah. Made you think of Ed Kemper, didn't it? God, yes. Well, this is Charles. This is another Charles. Newspapers and reporters started reporting all kinds of inaccuracies, false claims, plus there were a lot of private detectives snooping around, so they really just mucked up the investigation. Mm -hmm. There were rumors flying everywhere. Well, yeah. But Hughes was still sure that Afkin killed the family. Why is he so sure of it? He He just just has a hunch. Right. Okay. When uh, he went and smoked with... He went and smoked with him. He might have. <laughs> he might have needed to. If he'd have smoked something, the answers would have come to him. If Mary Jane would have just got in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She'd have got there first. <laughs> he went and spoke with John Afkin's boss, Henry Boker. He told Hughes that Afkin was not at home the night of the murders. Meanwhile, Another detective from St. Louis named Louis Reinhardt said he had found the murder weapon. Two bloody knives soaked in blood and human tissue. The Stilton readers' heads had been crushed and battered by an axe. Investigators thought partly because of the bloody axe drag mark in the front yard. But their throats had also been slit, and there were puncture wounds made by swift jabs found on the body. So investigators did believe that there was a knife or knives used in the murder. Obviously. But the two knives that the detective Reinhardt found were debunked by Sheriff Hughes. He told reporters that the knives that were there had been used by the physicians when they were cutting the clothes off the victims during the inquest. And that's how the victim's blood and tissue were on them. So can you imagine this crime scene? Like they're going in, they're doing the inquest, and they just use some scissors and they just leave them there. No. Like they just leave mm, some random scissors. Go. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it was just another dead end. One paper was quoted as saying, to such a pitch is public excitement and curiosity raised that most improbable stories are told and eagerly devoured. So basically, people were believing all kinds of shit. Right. Any kind of outlandish story. Yeah, because that makes the story better. Sure. That's the gossip. Yeah. So Sheriff Hughes went and questioned John Afkin again to find out where he was the night of the murders, since he was not at home like his employer, Henry Boger, said. Afkin told Hughes that he was staying at the home of a friend named Jacob Becker. The Becker home was less than a mile from the Stilton Reader home. When Jacob was questioned, he confirmed that, yes, Afkin did stay at his house all night and that he could have not killed the Stilton Reader family. Right. So he has his alibi. Yeah. Hughes was at another dead end. 
But by now, the speculation and rumors as to why Charles Stilson Reader and his children never came to the funerals had reached a a fever pitch. So Hughes decided that he needed to talk to Charles. There was a big deal made about which family member would inherit Carl Stilson Reader's estate. If Anna died last, the estate would go to Fred Boltz and Anna's sister. If Fritz or Carl were killed last, then the estate would go to Charles Stilson Reader. But the physicians that helped do the inquest believed that Carl and Fritz died last because Anna and the children looked like they had never moved from their sleeping positions. Right. So, right. This, along with Charles's noticeable absence from his brother's family's funeral, made Charles Stilson Reader the next suspect. So Carl and Charles Stilson Reader came from Germany and at one time farmed next to each other in Saxtown. But they had a falling out after a relative in Germany died and left the majority of the estate to Carl. Charles felt slighted, and he decided to move away to Jefferson, Illinois, and start his life over. The two brothers never spoke again. So with this background information, some people in Milstadt and Saxtown said that they seen one of Charles's sons in town the day of the murder. Hughes took several took the several hour journey to arrest Charles and his sons. Damn. So we heard you was up in here. Yeah. So, so then, the you know, of course, there's so much speculation like, oh, yeah, I seen. Right. His and nephews in town. Add fuel to the fire. Right. Once Hughes arrived in Jefferson and Washington County, Illinois, four days after the murders, he took Charles's sons, Henry, Martin and William and arrested them, taking them to the jail to be questioned. While they were being questioned, a group of over two dozen neighbors showed up to vouch for their whereabouts, and they told Hughes that Charles had been sick for at least three to four weeks, and that he had just found out about the murders, and that's why he was not at the funeral. They all signed affidavits saying that um, they had seen the boys and could account for their whereabouts from March 15th through March 21st. And the murders happened on the 19th. Right. So, so Hughes had very little to go on at this point. The next day, accompanied by his lawyer, the very feeble Charles Stilton reader came in to provide his whereabouts during the time of the murders. Mm-hmm. He also provided a physician's note stating where he was around the time of the murders because so, he had I been mean, sick. Right, because he had been, yeah. Right. I, I guess he was in the hospital. Or they at didn't least, say. At least under doctor's care. It could have been at but home But a lot of doctors, yeah, yeah, went to the homes at that yeah. point. And so. the doctor's like, look, he was bedridden. He was not... a even exactly. capable of doing this. And he did. So he came in and talked to Hughes. So it was obvious that Charles was in no shape to hack to death an entire family right. when Hughes seen him. He didn't have the strength in his body physically right. to do that. So Hughes still had suspicion about Henry and Martin Stilts and Reader because they worked the rail lines as railroad section bosses. One report said that the conductor saw a suspicious person at the Cairo short line route in St. Clair County the morning of the murders, which is near Saxtown. Okay. 
Hughes was grasping at straws now. Yeah. Everybody is because you're getting exactly. so many leads. You have exactly. no clue. And it's not like they have forensic exactly. forensics yeah. at this point. Yeah, you so. have to follow up on all the leads you get. That's all you have. Charles Eckert, one of the administrators of the estate, kept the farm up. Some of the neighbors came to clean up the gruesome mess. Although blood spatter was still all over the walls, they would have to be painted over. A large blood stain still showed on the floor despite being cleaned. Eckert's farm was worth three times what the Stilton Reader farm was, so he ended up being the perfect caretaker for the farm. He kept the animals fed and well-maintained, and he took care of the wheat fields. Meanwhile, Sheriff Hughes, he just kept coming back to the house to investigate, just in hopes that he would see something that was missed. And you know what? Kudos for you, Sheriff. You didn't give yeah. up. You didn't He's say, like, let me go back it. and let yeah. me just say, you just see if there's looking. anything. You keep trying. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. And some of the papers at the time started to question Hugh's ability to solve the murder, stating that there had been several other murders in St. Clair County in the last three years, and the perpetrators all escaped. Hughes arrested two other men saying that their shoe prints matched the ones in the scene, but a judge ruled that there were so many Stilton Reader's neighbors out there that there was no way that they could have say that they could say which when prints it came from belonged what to the time? killer. Right. Yeah. Like what time frame? Because there was five hundred fucking people right. outside their house. So the judge released them. Okay. Fred Boltz and John Afkin were still in jail and had been for a month. So on April 23rd, Afkin filed a petition with the courts for Hughes to produce an arrest warrant or let him go. On April 28th, a grand jury convened and they let both men go due to lack of evidence. Some started to whisper that the case was cursed. Sheriff Hughes met with a bad horse and buggy accident and it was stated that he will never fully recover from the accident, but it was not fatal. Okay. His wife the same day fell and broke her leg. Mm. And the next day, Constable Bangert, <laughs> who had helped with the case, mm-hmm. also had a horse and buggy accident and broke his leg. Good Lord. All the while, the investigators, <clears throat> neighbors and friends, all thought someone would eventually confess. Mm-hmm. Days, weeks, and years passed with nothing. Years. Yes. So it was years Later, mm. after this family was butchered. Yes, yeah, shit. Okay. Until May of 1876, when a private investigator that lived two miles north of the Stilson Reader farm got a letter. Christian Orp received a letter from a man named Henry Gretting. Okay. Gretting said that he had been paid to kill the family, but had now been haunted by their ghost. This was debunked as a false deathbed confession, which surprisingly happened a lot in the late 1800s and early 1900s, especially when it came to high-profile cases. Mm -hmm. But this served to reignite the whole Saxtown murders in the press. Isaiah Thomas, the school teacher that was at the crime scene with Ben George Schneider Mm -hmm. and the two farmhands, Charles and George Killian, just could not let this go. He like became obsessed with this and he was determined to find out who, who killed. did it. Yeah. yeah. And I can understand that because you want to know, you want right. facts, you want closure. Right. And this who is in your this? neighborhood. Yes. So these are people you knew. He started his own investigation and was very vocal about the fact that he thought the Schneider brothers had something to do with it. So in 1881, George Schneider had had enough, 
and he sued Isaiah Thomas for defamation. Thomas countersued the Schneiders. All this did was pit people against each other and cause a lot of distrust in the neighborhood. Right. A lot more conflict. They was already questioning each other, putting the blame at each other. In October of 1881, more suspicion roared back into the case when the former Sheriff Hughes died mysteriously in the basement of the courthouse. He was found with his skull cracked open and had died two hours later after he was found. Damn. Apparently, he was looking over a rail that Uh was going into the basement, and they think he fell over the top Mm. of the rail. And then two hours later. After he was found, he died. Most likely, it was just a fall, but the residents of Saxtown thought the killer, uh, you know, stopped by to take him out before Mm. he could figure out who Who killed the Stilson Raiders. Yeah. There was some movement in the case in 1882. A grand jury did choose to indict George Killian for accessory after the fact, thanks to Isaiah Thomas. George's brother Charles Killian had committed suicide, and Isaiah Thomas said that he had witnesses that heard the Killian brothers talking about the murders. Again, it's just all hearsay. Right. Yeah. Right. But soon, Judge William H. Snyder squashed the indictment, freeing Killian of suspicion that hung over his head now. He would still spend the rest of his life defending himself from rumors that he killed or helped kill the Stilton Raiders. So everyone was back to square one. In 1886, after people started coming back to Saxtown to try and solve the case, Fred Boltz took his family, his wife, and eight kids and left to start over and was never seen in St. Clair County again. I would, too. I'd take my family and get the fuck out of there. Now, Fred Boltz actually did receive um, about $400 from the Stilson Reader estate. Estate. So he did sue to get part of that. Mm. And he got $400. He moved him and his eight children to Nebraska. Oh. And his name is spelt with a Z on the end. Mm-hmm. And he changed that to an S to make it harder for people to find Find him. him. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Several of the people involved in the case died in the years following the case. Sheriff Hughes, after his mysterious fall at the courthouse, his son Julius died in a tornado several years later. Charles Killian committed suicide. George committed suicide. Isaiah Thomas died at a poor farm in 1887. His wife died the same year as the murders. Charles, Carl's brother, did inherit most of the farm Mm -hmm. from his dead brother. And even though he was in poor health at the time, he did live many more years. Okay. Fred Boltz, again, like I said, he changed his name, moved to Nebraska, (laughs) and he actually became a wealthy landowner. But he died in 1902. Okay. Ben Schneider, who found the bodies, mm-hmm. became a janitor at the Millstadt Public School until old age, and he retired just due to some disabilities that he had from old age. Right. In 1924, on the 50th anniversary, a newspaper did a story on the unsolved crimes. Ben, even though he was not ever listed as a suspect, still had to deal with rumors and whispers about possible involvement because he was left-handed. They believed that the killer was left-handed. Okay. And he found the bodies. Right. He died in 1927 at the age of 81, never really being able to shake off the events from that gruesome night. Yes, that would be a life-changing event. Yes. Peter Muscop, 
bought the Stilton Reader property in 1880s. He wasn't dirt poor, but close to it. After all, he was still willing to live in a small house where the floors were still stained with the blood of five people. Mm. His view was one that the other Saxtown residents thought, and that was the Stilton Readers were killed for money. People came much more quiet about having money after this incident. Well, yeah, you don't fucking advertise it. Look what happens when you do. One resident said, never talk about money and take it to the bank. Most people wondered why the Muscop family wanted to live there. They did enlarge the porch and build onto the front of the house. They put carpet down in the front room over the stained wood floors, but there was still dents in the woodwork from the misdirected axe blows. Mm. In 1897, Muscop was asked by a reporter about living in a haunted house. He said, no, we don't mind living in the house, and as far as ghosts, if there are such a thing, we've never seen any around here. Mm-hmm. His son Percy talked about playing in the front yard, and very often an old man would walk by and talk about the murders as if he knew too much. Percy would not give the man's name because his family still lived in the area. But Percy said that the old man had kind of a split personality and that he would just mumble and then switch to words that painted a clear picture of the crime. He told Percy stuff like the Stilton readers had a big club by the door to fight back with, but they never made it to it. He also said he knew Fritz Stilton reader had his basket necklace with money in it and it was hanging on a big log they had in the front room where the murders had all happened. Right. The old man said the log it hung on was about 10 inches square. So he was pretty graphic about that. He had, he was very detailed. Detailed in his, yes, yes, recanting of the story. Percy also um, always thought that this old man uh, may have actually done the murders. The Muscops sold the property in 1945 to Leslie Gines. Percy died in 1999. Leslie Gines and his wife, Jessie, wanted to tear down the old house after they bought it in 1945, but it wasn't until 1954 that they actually tore it down. They were tired of gawkers passing by, and every time he told someone where he lived, he got the same response. Oh, yeah, that's where the Stilton readers were murdered. Right. He hoped tearing it down would stop all the talk about the murders. But when the house was being tore down, it attracted a lot of onlookers. The new house they built was a small box-like 1950s house, kind of like a cinder block house. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Nothing more than basically just a... Basic house. Basic house, yeah. Right. But they did leave the old Stilton Reader barn up, and it is currently still up. Wow. That's where the bodies were held until they were buried in the Freivogel Cemetery. Mm. So they moved the bodies out of the house and into the the barn. Yeah, while they were preparing them for burial. Leslie Jones died in 1963, and his wife died in 1985. Randy Eckert took over the property in 1985. He is a relative of the Eckerts that live beside the Stilton readers. Eckert and his wife stayed at the house for about a week before something unexplainable happened. Uh oh! But this is the new house, right? Okay. Right. So we got a little ghost story thrown in here. Okay, for you. I can't wait. They were woken up in the middle of the night by slamming doors and a dog barking. And you remember the Stilton Readers had their dog, dog. Monk, Mm -hmm. and it was pinned up and it was barking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was said to be really protective of the family. So, 
but their dog was standing silently at the foot of the bed, shaking and scared to death. This type of activity would happen around the dates of the murder. This type of phenomenon happened with pretty much every tenant that stayed in the house. Mm. Knocks, dog barking, door slamming, and footsteps could be heard, but only around the time of the murders. Mm. Eckert had had a slew of people rent the house, but no one would stay very long. Someone or some people got away with murder in Saxtown in 1874. No tools existed in that time to help solve the case. No DNA, no blood typing. They didn't even take pictures of the scene. Not to mention the amount of people that were able to walk through the scene and destroy evidence. A complicated case with all the different types of theories and newspapers that could print anything they wanted, even if it wasn't factual, all played a role in hiding whoever this killer is. Are you trying to tell me this person's never been found? Never been found. (gasps) I was not expecting that. Mm -hmm. With twists and turns like the Mississippi River, this case remains a mystery and always will. Oh my God. Now, I read in some cases where we talked about the John Afkin, that he Mm -hmm. was the redheaded beast, you know, Mm -hmm. that Carl had grasped in his hand a clump of red hair that matched Uh, Afkin's hair. Okay. But I couldn't find that in every account. So that could be just some newspaper that was creating some drama for some story sales, for some clout. They want some clout. Yes. Yes. Okay. But I do think that they were killed for money. Oh my God! I did not know that they never that found it was never fucking it. found never out. Never found it, which isn't surprising from that time era. What are they supposed to do? I mean, right. what what? Unless you could, basically catch somebody in the act, what are you supposed to or do? have irrefutable exactly. proof? Nobody was cut. There was no, you know, wounds on the suspects mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. had. It was somebody. But somebody had to, I, I believe they definitely were killed because the well, money was in the house. We're going to cheers one last time to those poor victims, that poor Absolutely. family. We had grandpa, dad, mom, mom, and two babies. And those two babies. Yes. God bless those babies. Whoever could do that to a child, I hope they're, it's really hot wherever you are. Because you yeah. know they're dead by this point. Oh, so I hope sure. it's hot as fuck where you are right now. And I hope that the Stiltson readers are at peace. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Cheers, bitches. Mm. I'm not going to lie. It was pretty good that time. I told you. I'm not begging for the nut. I am (laughs) not begging for the nut. But it was good that time. But look, you wouldn't have a problem finishing this jar right now, would Mm -mm. you? (laughs) I would not. Not one bit. Well... We hope that you guys have enjoyed this one. That was gruesome as fuck. Those poor children. Next week, you're going to give us a hint of what you got coming? No. Okay. Not even a little bit. You're going to leave us hanging? I'm going to leave you hanging. Just know we got something coming next week. And it's going to be good. <laughs> and until then, be good, stay out of trouble, or don't get caught. Bye, bitches. We hope you keep listening. And find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at Murder and Moonshine. We would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at murderandmoonshine at gmail.com.